welcome to the Platform Podcast, where we talk to coaches, athletes, experts, and real people to learn about their approaches to training, nutrition, mindset, and much more. I'm your host, Jordan Kundi wright founder and head coach of the Twin Cities Kettlebell Club, and I'm on a mission to help others build sustainable, healthy lifestyles. My guest this week is Mike Milner, founder and CEO of Peak Optimization Performance. And in this episode, we get into his background, uh, a little bit about neurotype training, as well as what neurotype training is, and how it can help you be successful in sticking to a diet and losing weight in a sustainable long-term manner. This is an incredibly fun conversation. Mike is very knowledgeable and we nerd out super hard on psychology, the interaction between your neurotransmitters and training style as well as diet. Uh, And there's just a ton in here. I could have talked to Mike for hours, um, but only got him for an hour, but it was such a great conversation. I really hope you enjoy it. And I want to take a second to say thank you. I'm incredibly grateful that you listen to this podcast. If you haven't already, please be sure to leave a rating and review of the Platform Podcast in your app of choice and support my work by supporting our sponsors whose affiliate links you'll find in the episode notes. And if you want to step onto the platform and compete in kettlebell sport, please reach out to me. I help athletes of all levels reach their goals without wasting time using my integrated online coaching approach. You can follow me on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube, Twin Cities Kettlebell Club, or email me at TwinCitiesKettlebellClub at gmail.com. Now, let's step onto the platform with Mike Milner. All right, welcome into this week's episode of the Platform Podcast. My guest this week is Mike Milner. He is the CEO and founder of Peak Optimization Performance and the creator of the Neurotype Diet, um, which I am actually in the middle of a six-week Neurotype Challenge. And my my nutrition coach, Samantha Burr, is a uh, POP certified uh, nutrition coach. So um, we're going to talk a little bit about that that Neurotyping thing. But Mike, thank you so much for for coming on today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I'm, I'm excited to be here. So for, for background, before we get into what neurotyping is, let's, let's learn a little bit about who Mike Milner is and, and kind of what your, what your journey was to, to get to this point, because I, I know a little bit about your backstory, but people who don't know you, uh, you know, let's, let's learn a little bit about what the Mike Milner origin story is. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, for sure. So um, I grew up an athlete, uh, so I played sports my whole life, uh, just as, as young as I can remember, all the way up through high school and college. Um, and never really had to worry about fitness, nutrition. It was just, it was all about sports. Um, I literally played anything that you could think of. And that was, that was my life for a long time, uh, until organized sports ended. And I found myself for the first time in my life, significantly overweight. And it was one of those things that while it happened progressively, it felt like it was an overnight change because again, like paying attention to nutrition was just never something that was in the realm of my thought process. It just, I was fortunate enough because I was an athlete and always playing sports. Oh, you know, whether it was pickup basketball, um, whether it was just like, you know, intramural leagues or in high school, anything that I could do to stay active. I just love sports. So um, after that ended, I had picked up a lot of typical college type habits, eating (laughs) and drinking like an asshole. Um, And that continued, but the activity didn't. So 
I remember like going to the bathroom one day and then looking in the mirror and being like, holy shit, who are you? Who is this person that's looking back at me? And that was like the first moment where my whole identity was kind of rattled to my core because I had identified as an athlete, all of my friends, my social circle, like that was how I identify was how I fit in and like kind of my whole purpose. So now I'm sitting here at like 250 pounds. I don't know how much I actually weighed because I didn't, I didn't have the courage to weigh myself until I started working on weight loss. So I know that that I stepped (laughs) on the scale was like 250. So I was probably even higher than that. But the problem was I did not feel comfortable seeing anybody, any of my old friends from high school, family members. I just, the, the stories in my mind were like, everyone's going to be like, what happened to you? How did you let yourself go like this? And I just, it, it like really um, shook me to my core. So that was the first moment of like, well, in order to fit in, I need to lose a bunch of weight. If I'm going to get back on a basketball court, I need to lose a bunch of weight. If I'm going to go see my friends, I need to lose a bunch of weight. And my thought process was, I don't want to delay that. I want to get back to being social and seeing my friends and, and playing again. So let's do this as fast as humanly possible, uh, which led me down the rabbit hole of, of course, very restrictive eating and excessive amounts of cardio. And that was just what I assumed to be the fastest way to get there. And while it quote unquote worked because I did lose weight quickly, um, that led me down the path of the kind of diet hamster wheel of gaining and losing and gaining and losing um, and really spinning my wheels for a long time. Uh, And it was a lot of mistakes along the way and doing things the wrong way and damaging, you know, my metabolism and my relationship with food and uh, suffering from disordered eating and just having body dysmorphia and pretty much everything that you could imagine going wrong through that process, which was a long process until I finally um, figured things out a little bit. So it was kind of one step at a time. I, I learned the strength training part of it. And then I started to piece some things together with nutrition, although nutrition was kind of a thing that eluded me for so long. So that's really where I found my passion because I saw so many other people suffering from the same thing that I was like, they were showing up to the gym every single day, but their bodies weren't changing and they were gaining and losing just like I was. So that was like the first moment where I started connecting the dots. Like, you know what? Nutrition plays a huge role in in what we're trying to accomplish when it comes to sustainable body composition change. Um, And so even with that, even once I pieced some things together with nutrition um, and I started coaching people and, and realized that like, that was my life's passion. This is what I wanted to do to really fulfill my purpose. Um, it's still, there was a lot of missing pieces and uh, neurotyping was actually the thing that finally was like the last puzzle piece where it all kind of made sense for me. Um, and then I've been able to kind of go on and have a very successful nutrition coaching company. And, and here we are today. Nice. Nice. So <clears throat> a lot there's a lot in there uh there's a lot in there i'll i'm gonna i'm gonna pull on a couple of threads i want i want i want to hear first a little bit more about um you you talked about you talked about your relationship with food and some disordered eating uh patterns and that's part of my story too and that's uh you know that's that's something i feel like a lot of people go through and don't really talk a lot about especially among men you don't hear it as much among men like admitting that yeah i had a fucked up relationship with food. And I did some, some, some crazy things. So talk a little bit about that. Like what, what happened, what happened with you and how did you, how did you deal with that? Yeah. Yeah. It's a good question. So it was, it was another thing that happened progressively, but also in my mind, it felt like it happened suddenly. Um, the first diet that I tried, which is pretty funny, and this is just uh, you know, random and like kind of gives you insight into where my thought process was at the time. So I, I bought a piece of like cardio equipment 
that was just going to sit in my apartment. So I could literally just do like two hours of cardio every single day and like watch TV or whatever, and just like be miserable while I'm doing it. Uh, and the manual of that cardio equipment, the back page had this like sample diet. That's like, if you're trying to lose weight, follow this diet. And I was like, Oh, perfect. I'm trying to lose weight. Let me follow this thing. It was like 1200 calories. And it was kind of like a meal plan. Um, and then they're like, big thing was like, make sure you drink freezing cold water all throughout the day because it speeds up your metabolism. It puts you in fat burning mode. And it was like all this nonsense. So I'm sitting temperature there. Like, of the, the temperature of the water is critical. It has to be ice it. cold, to, ice cold. Ice. Yep. Yep. So I'm there, like I'm going to work with like my, my, my water, I'm putting it in the freezer. I'm like making sure that I take it out when it's, when it's just before it's frozen, like all this stuff. And, uh, it was like legit, like 1200 calories. And then, um, so that was like the first time where I started to make the connection of like less is better. Um, but then I, so I lost a bunch of weight doing that, obviously being a 200 and some pound man at the time eating 1200 calories, it's, it's pretty hard not to lose weight, but of course it's very easy For a period to period of time. <laughs> right. Right. And so then once it becomes unsustainable, uh, then you gain the weight back pretty quickly. So that's what happened for me. Um, and then the, the real turning point was I did a challenge at a, a gym that I was going to at the time. And it was a six week challenge. And I got a list of foods that was like, here's the food, here are the foods that you can eat. And here are the foods that you can't eat. And I remember going to the grocery store and this was like the first time that I had really started to pay attention to food quality. Um, because with the other program, it was literally just a meal plan. It was like, buy this, this. So it was like, just eat these foods. There was no like good or bad. It was just, I was following a strict meal plan, but this yeah. other one was like, you can pick what you want to eat, but it has to be from this list and yeah. avoid the good foods, the bad foods. Right. right. So I'm at the, I'm at the grocery store and I'm thinking of some stuff that in my mind is healthy. Like I'm like, Oh, cool. So I can start eating fruit like apples. I really like apples. And then I look on the list and there's apples on the don't eat list. And I'm like, Oh, that's strange. Or like carrots were on the don't eat list. And like, I'm totally like my mind is just in a million different directions right now, like assuming that these foods are good for me. And now I'm being told that they're not. So I'm like, all right, well, I'm just going to follow exactly what this says. And so I get, you know, all my quote unquote good foods. And what happened was through that program, I got very lean and like very lean and almost to the point of like, the funny part about this is as I was getting leaner, it was never good enough. So I remember thinking like, all right, I had this goal of 200 pounds. I hit 200 pounds. I had this, then I moved the goalpost back. It was 190. I hit 190. Then I moved the goalpost back. It was 180. I hit 180 and I keep this and it's never good enough. Never good enough. Um, all of a sudden I end up at like 165. Um, and when I look at those pictures, it's, it's actually hard to see because I have like, I'm just, I'm like emaciated. I, I don't, I don't look healthy and because I wasn't, but so inevitably same thing happens. I have like a, you know, a kind of a binge session. I gain a bunch of weight back. And for me, it was like, oh, I started eating the bad foods. That's why I gained the weight back. So now I'm associated. It was all those apples and carrots. That's, <laughs> exactly. what, that's what did. Now it's like, okay, I got to stick to these. So I remember becoming obsessed with, I can't like saying these words to myself, I can't eat anything that's not on this like approved list. So it was like an orthorexia type of and that's uh, what it was. representation. So, okay. So the way that it manifested itself for me was I would skip out on, on social events. I wouldn't go out with my friends. 
Um, if it was like a family dinner and I knew that there was going to be foods there, I would just say that I was sick. I couldn't make it. Um, I remember going out like the times where I couldn't avoid it and I had to go whatever to like a lunch or something. I would be that guy who's like, I want a salad. I don't want you to cook the chicken in any oil or butter. I don't want any croutons or anything other than just like the, the raw vegetables and the grilled chicken and no dressing. And that was it. And so um, so God, my, you must have been a blast to hang out with. Super fun. Super fun. So <laughs> my sister is actually a licensed therapist who specializes in eating disorders. And she sat me down one day and was like, have you ever heard of orthorexia? And I was like, no. She was like, you should look into it because I think that you might have it. And I got all defensive. I didn't even know what it was. I was like, I don't have orthorexia. What are you talking about? And I would get like, I'm just trying to be healthy. Like, why can't you support me? I'm just trying to be healthy. I don't understand why this is a problem. And I get all mad, whatever. And then I start to look into it. And I was like, oh, shit, that's that's definitely what I have. <laughs> you, start read, you start reading the description in the DSM board. Yeah. You're like, you're like, yeah, oh, like, you yep, check, check, check. Right in there. <laughs> so um, that was, and so it was the disordered relationship with food was labeling foods as good versus bad, feeling guilty for eating certain foods, um, thinking that I had to only eat clean foods for whatever that meant for me, um, you know, skipping out on social events, missing out on, on life just for the sake of hitting my, my quote unquote meal plan. Um, a lot of that stuff, you know, my, my body image too, like I said, no matter how lean I got, it was never good enough. Um, body dysmorphia. So like I'm sitting there like 165 pounds and being like, ah, I'm still fat. Um, yeah. so yeah, a lot of different uh, ways that that showed up for me. Wow. Yeah. So, I mean, good on your sister for, you know, and uh, how fortunate for you, right. To have somebody like in your family that, that specializes specifically in that and good on your sister for having a, a loving conversation with you about that. But how did, so how did you, how did you go about addressing that? Yeah. So, um, I, so then I actually went on like the other end of the spectrum because, um, it was one of those moments where you realize like, kind of like you mentioned, like I'm zero fun. And as somebody that I, I love to be social, I love to hang out with my friends. I love to just like travel and do different things and experience the world. And now I'm sitting here like missing out on this stuff. And it was more so of like the, the FOMO of like, I'm not able to do these things. And then I was like, do I really, I don't want this to be my reality. So I started looking in and like researching as much as I possibly could. And this was really where I was like, I should, rather than listening to somebody who was just telling me like some random person who just gave me a food list, like, why don't I actually educate myself outside of this just one source? And that was where I like poured myself. I have a very obsessive personality. So when I like latch onto something, I have to learn it inside out, backwards, forwards. And that was what I did. I can relate. <laughs> uh, so that was where I started to be like, okay, um, I've, I've definitely been doing things wrong. Um, I need to take a different approach. I actually went and like kind of the pendulum swung hard in the other direction was like, not only am I not going to eat quote unquote clean, but I'm going to follow the IIFYM if it fits your macros approach. And I'm going to show everyone that I can get shredded eating donuts and pop tarts and you know, whatever else I want to, you know. Yeah. If it fits it, the macros, it doesn't it matter. Your and body doesn't know the difference like, between a pop tart and a, and an apple. Right. And, and then again, it was like, I actually, I started to get, you know, I was building muscle. I was getting leaner. I was, but I felt like crap. I had like, 
you know, I was. You had like anti-orthorexia or something. I don't even, I don't even know what you would call that. But my like my gut health was a mess. My digestion was a mess. I I like my um, just like brain fog, clarity, all that stuff. But it didn't matter because I was, you know, I was seeing physical progress. And look at me, I can eat donuts and still get abs. And so it was like, all right. First, the pendulum was hard one way, then it swung in the other direction. And eventually I had to be like, this is ridiculous. There, there needs to be a middle ground here. I know um, that this is not sustainable. And so eventually I found my way out of that, that hole. Wow. That's quite a journey, man. That's, that's, that's awesome. And so now, but now, I mean, you took that obviously, and, and uh, that was probably, I'm assuming some of the motivation for like creating the neurotyping plan and, and and going, going to full on down that rabbit hole of like, how can I teach, how can I, how can I save other people from going through the, the pain that, that you experienced, like trying to, trying to find the right way to do it. So tell us a little bit about how, how neurotyping came to be and, and where, where that research or originated and, and how you started creating this program. How long did it take you? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So there was a couple of things that I noticed. First was the challenge that I did, that six week challenge where I got that food list um, I was still going to that gym and I actually started to uh, train other people. Like when I, I, I was originally a personal trainer, started working there and the challenge was like a consistent thing that was happening. And it was the same people that were signing up and it was the same people that were losing 20 pounds and then gaining it back and then signing up for the next challenge and then losing 20 and gaining it back. And, and I was like, something's not right here. There's, there's definitely a disconnect. And that was really where, you know, once I found more of a balanced approach with like, macros and food quality and just like understanding the basics. Um, I really, that was when I was like, okay, I need to focus on my passion, which is the nutrition side of things. So I started working as a nutrition coach for another company and what I, so kind of like the first time that I had a client, this was like right before I got hired by this other company. And I was just like, you know, brand new coach. I wanted to see if I actually knew what I was doing. So I had my first client from the gym. I was like, I need help with nutrition. I was like, perfect. Like I, I just got certified. I'm going to help you out. I'm going to give you a macro plan. And she got so like, she was eating under eating and we, we got her calories up, started tracking macros. And she was just like hyper responder, like abbed up in like weeks. It was just crazy. And I was like, this is so easy. <laughs> this is so easy. <laughs> like it's just a, a formula. I, can, and I like, can get anyone shredded. Just give them a good macro plan. So, so then other, this other group of girls that are women at the gym, they see the results uh, from, from my first client. They're like, we need your help too. I'm like, yeah, come on. Like this is, this is simple. And like, none of them got results. <laughs> I was like, okay, it's back to the drawing board. Um, so I realized that it was more than just macros. Like macros are a great tool. It's just one tool in the toolbox. But what I noticed with the others, it's like, well, first of all, not all of them were responding to reverse dieting and not all of them were even consistent with their macros. Anyway, I start working for this other company and this was like a big macro coaching company and they had thousands and thousands of clients and it was all just like a mac macro formula um, delivered through an app. And it was like, you get your macros, follow the plan. And like the coaching was just like, check in, look at the app. If they're hitting their macros, are they making progress? If they're, you know, and if they are, don't change anything. If they're not making progress and they're not hitting their macros, just tell them to hit their macros. Like there wasn't real coaching involved. Mm -hmm. um, and I saw a lot of like, just we're follow about, the plan. <laughs> right, right. We're talking about thousands of data points, like looking 
you know, we had these like backend tools from the app and you could like legitimately look at thousands and thousands of data points and yeah. see that like 99% of the people who want weight loss are gaining weight. And, and it's like the company line is just hit your macros. And I'm like, that was really where it was like a whole paradigm shattering moment. Like if it was just that simple, then why is everybody struggling? Um, so I, that was really where I ended up finding neurotyping because for me, like I told you, my sister's a psychologist. Psychology is a, is kind of like in our family bloodline um, from like my mom, my sister, my aunt, like it's just, it's in our genes. Um, so that's always been a, a passion of mine. And it was like, is it, is, or is it in your nurture? <laughs> it's in my, my nature and my nurture. <laughs> <laughs> I studied psychology and sociology in, in college. So it's, yeah. you know, this is a passion point for me too, but I'm sorry to interrupt. No, no, I love it. So that was one of those things where I was like, I've spent so much time. And by the way, throughout this process, I probably accumulated like a dozen nutrition coaching certifications. Cause it was like, I always thought I'm missing something. Like if macros don't work, it must be something. Just else. get one. If I can just find that one find more thing I need to learn. Exactly. Um, and that one more thing was the psychology of it is way more important. I shouldn't say way more important because physiology of course plays a role, but it doesn't do you much good to have the perfect macro formula if you can't adhere to, it, if you can't sustain it. So that was where I was like, okay, there has to be something that's going on psychologically. Why um, consistency is, is easier for some and more difficult for others, or the same plan doesn't work for two different people. And like, what's going on here, you know, between the ears, what's going on upstairs. And so that was when I started focusing more on the psychology side of things. Um, I came across Christian Thibodeau, who was one of my early mentors and um, so he was in a, an early mentee of Charles Poliquin, who started to piece together the role of neurotransmitters in training. Mm. So Charles had a lot of um, athletes that he worked with, and he had a lot of athletes. <laughs> that's, that were, that's, that's, that's an understatement of the century yeah. there. <laughs> For people that don't know, Charles Poliquin is like one of the one of the greatest strength and conditioning coaches of all time. Uh, it, a bunch of Olympic gold medalists and a bunch of Olympic qualifiers. Like he was a top, top, top notch uh, yeah. strength and conditioning sport and, and had a ton of uh, research and theories and, and hypotheses. He was a different thinker and he tested a lot of those hypotheses and, and really changed the way we think about uh, strength and conditioning in a, in a lot of areas. So just a, some backstory for people that aren't familiar with who Charles Poliquin is. Yeah, absolutely. And he started to piece together like, neurotransmitters play a role. He, he had some theories that people that rub people the wrong way, like the whole earn your carbs approach. But the reason was he had these high performing athletes who were more dopamine dominant. And we can get into like the, the whole neurotyping concept, but he's working with people who don't need as many carbs. Um, they, they handle stress better. They're elite athletes. So he started to piece together, like there's something going on here with these, the style of training, and the neurotransmitter balance that's going on. And he, and then Christian um, took that and kind of took it one step further and was like, yes, but there's more than just one type of, of like prototype athlete. There's, you know, many different profiles and different, um, you know, everyone has their own kind of unique neurochemical balance that's going on. And we can look at other neurotransmitters outside of just dopamine. We can look at things like adrenaline. We can look at acetylcholine. We can look at glutamate. We can look at GABA, serotonin. And these are all going to play different roles in the brain. And based off of that, we can kind of get an idea of how to um, you know, create the, the proper training protocol that's going to optimize your, your nature or your, your kind of brain chemistry. Um, so I studied under Christian 
Um, he is one of the best, like if you want to build muscle and perform better, he's one of the best in the business. Um, and his passion was never really in nutrition. And that was my passion. And I was like, okay, well, if it makes sense on the training side of things, and if what we eat literally becomes what we are and, and influences neurotransmitter balance, then there has to be a connection between the nutrition and neurotransmitter brain chemistry, neurotyping concepts. So then yeah. it was just kind of putting all of those pieces together and, and coming up with the full kind of like overall lifestyle approach of neurotyping, which factors in nutrition, training, like your everyday life, how you handle stress and, and all the things that uh, we've been able to create now. Yeah, that's fantastic. That's uh, the, the integration across, across disciplines and across systems is, is something that's really, really hard. And it's something that, that not a lot of people uh, have the skill or the curiosity to do. And that's, I mean, that's what I think is really impressive about, uh, about uh, I mean, and, and just, I'm just scratching the surface on it because I literally just got connected to it a, a couple of months ago. And I've already told you, I'm signing up for your next, for your next certification. So uh, next time I can make it to one, I'm going to, I'm going to get the, I'm going to get the neurotyping certification. But Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Platform Podcast. We'll get back to the interview shortly. If you're a loyal listener, you know that I don't typically do interludes, but I wanted to take this opportunity to share some exciting updates. The date is set for the first annual Twin Cities Kettlebell Open. On October 23rd, we will be hosting at the Athlete Lab here in Little Canada, Minnesota, in the heart of the Twin Cities. And we've already got some great sponsors starting to be lined up. Uh, Bellevator from Dennis Vasilov has given two belts for us to give away. Our friend Nikolai Puchlov from the Seattle Kettlebell Club is providing his new Made in the USA Pro kettlebells for competitors to try out and use on the platform, sanctioned by the IKO. Um, additional sponsors include Barefoot Athletics and Gaspari Nutrition as well. Um, and if you have any ideas or connections to other interested sponsors, please reach out to me. Uh, and also, please go register for the event on our website, TwinCitiesKettlebellClub.com. And now, let's get back into the interview. So, how, how many neurotypes are there, and how did you guys how did you guys determine that? How was that how how was that determined, and then? Where did you guys go from there? Yeah, absolutely. So there's there's five different profiles. Um, and, and a lot of this stems from personality psychology, which has been um, utilized in like, you know, job hiring, um, if recruit yeah, industrial organizational psychology background. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And then also in like relationship coaching. So yeah. even leadership coaching there, it, this um, kind of practice has as use cases across the board. So it makes sense that it applies to, you know, kind of what we eat and how we train and, and just the way that we live our lives. Um, so looking back at like previous models, uh, we looked at the Braverman assessment, we looked at the Cloninger model, um, and those kind of break up, um, it was like really the first insight that we get into neurotransmitters associated with personality types yeah. um, and just kind of came up with uh, what we look at as the five different neurotypes. And, and it just, when you start to see the research, uh, it kind of naturally aligns this way. Some argue that there are six. So like the way that we break it down, it's, you know, type 1A, type 1B, type 2A, type 2B, then type 3. Um, so if you look at some of the research in, in the Braverman assessment, um, you know, there's, there's kind of this like 3A, 3B 
that could potentially be, you know, a separate whole profile. But um, once we kind of looked at how that breaks down and how it applies, um, grouping it into five just made a little bit more sense uh, because it really was splitting hairs into yeah. some of the differences and, and what we're trying to accomplish. Um, everybody has characteristics of multiple types. Yes. So the amount of profiles was like, you know, you have to come up with something that's practical, that makes sense, um, but not trying to pigeonhole people too much because your, your upbringing and your background and your life experience is going to play a role in shaping your personality. And this is where personality psychology, it tells us like, okay, we have this genetic profile or, or personality type, but it expands as we age and as we experience life. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's where it's like, it gives us a good framework. Um, but also understand that we all have different characteristics of multiple profiles. So that yeah, and then there's plasticity to it, like you mentioned. Like as you as as you as you train your body, right, you can influence the type of fibers that you develop. And as you eat differently, you know, over the course of your life, the way your body uses fuel can adapt. And like so, all of these things are always, you know, when people ask, "Is it nature or nurture, genetics or genetics or, or your choices?" and the answer is always yes. <laughs> you know, it's 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 always a combination of the two, and and your choices influence how your genetic the epigenetic representation, how they express, and then, you know, et cetera. And some of those things are outside your control. Like it's a whole fascinating thing to try and, you know, it's an interesting puzzle to, to try and uh, unravel a little bit. Yeah, definitely. And we're taking two concepts that are literally like two of the things that we know the least about, which is the human <laughs> brain and the human metabolism. And we're trying to put a framework around them. So it will continue to evolve. And that's, I think that's the exciting part about it is like, there's so much, new and evolving research and it's we really just have started to scratch the surface yeah well and you're getting you're getting more and more uh i mean i guess we would call it anecdotal data at this point where you know you're getting you're getting people are living it and doing and doing it and, and applying it and they're giving you feedback and you'll collect more objective data from them as as they go through the the protocols and um that's that's very cool can you give people um just a cliff note a cliff notes version of the of the of the five of the five types and and kind of like what 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 they are and yeah, how you yeah so the way that we kind of profile um and, and separate the types it's by the dominant neurotransmitter system and for those that don't know neurotransmitters are just chemical messengers um that that pretty much control everything everything literally <laughs> everything you can't have a process in the body that if you've seen inside out from pixar <laughs> like it's kind of like that, that. all of our emotions our movement you know fear anxiety all of that is controlled um, by neurotransmitters. So uh, we look at what is the dominant system, neurotransmitter system that creates their characteristics, their, their behavior tendencies, their strengths, weaknesses. Um, and, and once we look at that, that's kind of how we separate the profiles. So starting with the type ones, we have type 1A and type 1B. They're both dopamine dominant. So dopamine is like that pleasure center, the brain, the reward center. Um, anything that we do that's kind of like habitual, um, it becomes habit because we get that dopamine release and that's, and it's a, a good feeling. It's like the pleasure center. And so we want more of that thing. Um, so people who respond, who are dopamine dominant, it means that their most of their behaviors and characteristics are driven by the dopamine system. Um, so in other words, they have a heightened response to dopamine. Uh, whereas somebody like a type 1A or type 1B uh, might have addictive tendencies, uh, somebody who's not dopamine dominant, uh, it doesn't have as much of a you know, heightened response if they are, let's say, 
um, you know, adrenaline dominant, for example. So a dopamine dominant individual, they're going to be, you know, more extroverted and outgoing. They're going to be like risk takers, thrill seekers. Um, Stop attacking me, Mike. (laughs) They're going to be argumentative, um, might not do well with authority. Again, more prone to addiction because uh, more exploratory. If you think about, you know, dopamine, it's like, okay, well, if I, um, let's say, did drugs, which is use an easy example, and that stimulates dopamine, well, I want more of that. So now the drugs that I'm doing, um, uh, um, you know, eventually I start to get used to that feeling and I want more. So I need to do more to get the dopamine response that my body yeah. craves. Um, even things like being extroverted, being, you know, taking risks, being outgoing, um, all based off of seeking that dopamine response. So if somebody who would be like really excited to jump out of a plane, for them, they don't think about like, well, my parachute might not open and I could die. They think about, you know, and this is subconscious. It's not like a rational thought. It's just the the innate trigger of I'm going to get a dopamine rush from this. Uh, I'm going to get it. I'm, I'm going to have that pleasure response triggered. So let's go do it. Like they don't even think twice. Like, yes, I'm in. Let's go. Um, whereas, you know, somebody who is maybe like a type three who's on the other side of the spectrum, very like they're very tactful. They're, they're planners very organized. They're not risk takers. They're going to be like, oh, hell no, I'm not risking my life to jump out of a plane. That's stupid. So, you know, that's where like the the driving force of their characteristic is the dopaminergic system. The difference between type 1As and type 1Bs is that type 1As have low levels of acetylcholine. Type 1Bs have high levels of acetylcholine. Um, Acetylcholine is a neurotransmitter that's responsible for memory, motor learning, coordination, skill transfer. Um, So you'll see like as type 1Bs, they're more multitaskers. Um, They both of them are impatient, but type 1Bs really like to be stimulated mentally because of their high levels of acetylcholine. So a type 1B, they're quick learners. They learn things like you can show them a complex lift. And without even giving them any cues, they can just repeat it and do it first try. And you're like, that was impressive. Like the natural athlete, um, they like more complex movements. Uh, So that's like the biggest difference. They're more um, like creative thinkers, whereas the type 1B is kind of like, the, the dominant leader, like I'm going to physically dominate you. Um, the, the type one B is more of like a creative. I can, I can talk my way into this, uh, you know, almost like the lawyer versus the salesperson. Um, so, uh, that's kind of like the main difference the the type one, a, they are who they are. They don't modify their personality. You take it or leave it. The type one B, they have a little bit more empathy. Um, they can modify their personality a bit more. Um, and then when we look at the type two A, that is my neurotype, we're adrenaline dominant. So most of our characteristics have to do with the fact that we have low levels of adrenaline at rest and we're highly potentiated by any increase in adrenaline. So um, get we, the lights shining bright. Yep, exactly. So with Adrenaline, uh, you know, obviously a lot of people know adrenaline is kind of like the the stress response, but it actually increases your confidence. It increases blood flow strength. Uh, so like when you're, you know, when you're working out, you've got adrenaline going, um, you, you have a higher perceived confidence and strength, but when we're at rest, we have low levels of adrenaline. So type two A's are typically a little bit more introverted and insecure when they're not activated. But then when they're turned on, they become like this alpha version of themselves. They come out of their shell. They're like almost like the incredible Hulk, you know, Bruce Banner, real quiet. But then all of a sudden the Hulk comes out and that's like the alpha version. Um, We are people who um, we need variety. 
Uh, because if we have the same stimulus over and over again, it no longer gives us that adrenaline response. We get used to it and then we lose motivation. So we want something new that will trigger the adrenaline response. Um, we also, um, I think I mentioned we're people pleasers. Um, our kind of chief motivation is like getting the admiration and respect of others. Um, so because when somebody is low adrenaline, a little bit more insecure and what's going to make me more secure? Well, it's getting somebody to like me or think that, you know, I'm a good person or whatever it may be. Um, and then we have type two Bs. Um, they're, main neurotransmitter system is glutamate. Glutamate is the emotional amplifier, um, also responsible for memory. But really, when glutamate's present, you have heightened emotions. So when you're, uh, when you're happy and you have glutamate present, high levels of glutamate, you're like euphoric. And then on the flip side of that, if you're sad and you have high levels of glutamate, you're, you're really sad or depressed. Um, so with the type 2Bs, it's all about feel. It's all about sensation. They're great in a one-on-one -on -one setting, great listeners. They're also people pleasers. Um, they like to look good, feel good. So they get um, very attached to any sort of activity, training, or anything that they do in their life that makes them feel good. They get used to that feeling and they avoid things that kind of, that don't like it's, it, it, they kind of avoid discomfort or things that don't make them feel good. Because again, it's all about sensation. So if you think about like training style, they love the, the mind muscle connection, the pump to feel their muscles working because they like that positive reinforcement that like I did something good and I can, I can actually feel it. Um, you know, great listeners, good in, in a one-on-one -on -one setting. And then finally we have the type three, uh, their main neurotransmitter system is serotonin. Serotonin is responsible for like contentment, sense of well-being. Um, so they have low levels of serotonin, which make them a little bit higher anxiety. So when somebody is higher anxiety, they typically like predictability because there's no worry. If I know what's coming, then there's no need to be anxious. So they're planners. They're very organized, very structured. They think very logically. They're not emotional. Two Bs are very emotional thinkers. Type three, they're very practical thinkers. They like data. They like information gathering. They like to make pragmatic decisions. Um, so anything to ease that anxiety. So they typically have a little bit higher levels of cortisol because of the fact they have lower levels of serotonin, um, a little bit more prone to being high stressed. So again, they like to have the repetitive like schedule. Um, they're great at following a plan. They can stick to it. They're very consistent, but they don't like sudden change because sudden change is going to drive their anxiety up even more. So if you're like, all right, today we're going to do deadlifts. And then they show up to the gym and you're like, actually, we're going to do box squats. Then that throws them off. It can completely mess up their motivation um, and actually risk injury. So um, those are, that's kind of like the, the quick, I, sh I shouldn't really say quick. That's the overview of the five types. Oh, that's great, man. That's, that's fantastic. And as I'm like, as I'm listening to you, I'm like, oh, that's, that's my son. Oh, that's my wife. Oh, that, you know, like, I, like it's, it's, it's funny how you can, you can, you can like, when you, when I hear you articulate it, you can start thinking of, of how that, of how that uh, people play into those archetypes. But then I also was thinking, you know, it's, I think it's good that you mentioned before that like you're a, anybody's a combination of the things because like, I'm a, I'm a one B, but I also have aspects of three because I am very organized and structured and I like data and, you know, but, but my dominant is, is one, is one B, but my, I think my three was relatively high. And like, when you take the neurotype assessment, you actually get a, you actually get a, a profile of like, here's where you score across the different dimensions, because we're all, we're all combinations of those things. And I'm, I'm curious how much, how much does it change over time? Have you guys had, do you have enough data to have any longitudinal uh, looks at, at how it shifts over time with people? 
Yeah, it's interesting. So it seems that most people kind of stick with their their dominant profile, but they start to see things that will come about a secondary profile that becomes really strong or close to their dominant profile based off of life experience and how they've evolved and grown over time. Um, so, you know, even for somebody like myself, um, I would score differently now than I would have. Like if you had asked me to take the assessment when I was in like high school and college, I probably would have came out like significantly higher in one B because I was at that point in my life, like winning was everything. I was an athlete. That's like the only thing that I knew it was like, that's it. We were here to win. And so the competitive drive was, was much higher. And as I've you know, gotten older and more experienced, like, you know, winning isn't everything. And, and I've, I've learned that, you know, failure is such a gift and I have a whole different perspective on it. So I wouldn't, score myself as high on like the competitive drive, um, scale. So, um, I'm, I'm a two, a one B is my secondary, but, um, you know, it definitely, uh, I would guess that I would have been much higher one B, uh, you know, maybe 10, 15 years ago. So people definitely evolve and change. It's hard to say like to what extent everyone's a little bit different, but it seems that like the dominant profile stays relatively consistent. Um, but that the, you know, the secondary and kind of other scores can, can adjust quite a bit. Yeah, I can see that, that, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. So, and now you guys, you mentioned both the nutrition and, and the, uh, and the training type. Um, so, so how do, how does it affect, um, well, we'll start with nutrition, right? Like how, how might it, how might it be reflected in, in what makes sense for uh, a nutrition standpoint and, and why, why does that, why does it matter when it comes to adherence, right? Like, like why does understanding your neurotype help with adherence to a, a nutrition plan? Yeah. So, um, this, we could definitely go down like a significant rabbit hole, but I'm going to try and keep it like very surface level, to, to like paint the picture of why it matters and how it plays such a role in consistency and adherence. Um, so we're gonna use something like uh, macro ratios. So um, everybody understands that, you know, protein, carbs, fats, how, how do we split up your macros to support your brain chemistry? So if you take, uh, you know, type ones who are dopamine dominant and we look at what is the main objective of like the uh, macro protocol or how we structure their meals, uh, or just nutrition plan in general, well, we want to support that dopamine system because the worst thing that can happen for a type one, whether it's a type one, a or type one B is that dopamine gets depleted. If they deplete, deplete dopamine, they'll feel like crap. So from a training perspective, we want to consider that, but then also from a nutrition perspective, we have tools in the toolbox that can help us with supporting dopamine production, mainly keeping protein high and keeping carbs moderate to low. Um, because what happens is if I eat a meal and it's high in protein and fats, I'm going to favor the transport of the amino acid L-tyrosine, which is one of the building blocks for dopamine. So that's going to support dopamine. If I have a, a meal that's high in protein and carbs, that's going to support the transport of L-tryptophan, which is a precursor to serotonin because they take the same transport in the body. So it's favoring one or the other. So L-tryptophan gets the advantage if it's higher carbs. And then serotonin is going to be increased. Um, and for, let's say for a type one, if they're eating really high carbs, you know, they already have higher levels of serotonin. So they oftentimes come across as like lazy when they're not doing like kind of at rest, they almost come across as like lacking motivation or lazy. Like I'll give you an example. Most sprinters are one B 
if you've ever seen a sprinter before a race, they almost seem like they could go to sleep. And it's mm -hmm. like, they're kind of just walking around very casual. Then they get up to the line, they get in position, the gun goes off and they're out a million miles an hour. And then they do their little celebration and then they're back to like zero. They're like chilling again. Or if you look at an Olympic lifter, Olympic lifter, they're sitting like sitting in a chair and you're like, is this person awake? And then they go ahead and like snatch 500 pounds and then they go and sit down again and they're like back to sleep. Um, that is because they have high inhibitors. So serotonin and GABA calm the brain down. Type ones have high levels of inhibitors, which is why they can handle stress better, which is why if we go back to Charles Poliquin, he was a very low carb advocate. He was an earn your carbs advocate because he worked with a lot of athletes. Yeah. Self-selecting population of, of explosive athletes. And he worked particularly with power lifters and Olympic weightlifters. Exactly. So if I already have high levels of inhibitors and then I'm eating high carbs, which drives my inhibitors up even more. I'm going to lose my motivation. So if I'm working with a type one, especially if I want them to get the most out of a training session, I need to amp them up to get ready. Whereas a type three who has low levels of serotonin, they're already amped up. Their, their anxiety, they're anxiety, anxious. their brain's firing. We want to calm them down. So for them, higher carbs is going to increase serotonin. It's going to put them in the optimal state to perform. So that's where we look at, um, you know, how can we manipulate macro ratios so that you feel your best. So for a type one, if we're constantly driving serotonin higher and higher, they're not going to have any motivation. It's going to come across as like, laziness, why bother, um, or even just like fatigue, overall fatigue. Mm. So we would think for a type one, you know, higher protein, higher fats, and a little bit lower to moderate carbs. Um, and then on the flip side of that with a type three, we, they would be the higher carb, lower fat approach because the main priority is supporting serotonin because they have lower levels. So carbs are going to increase serotonin levels. So that's where um, that like strategy can come into play. And then with a type 2A, um, they're very much like we, we need variety, first of all, because I, like I said, we get bored easily if we do the same thing over and over again. But if you think about adrenaline being the main driver for type 2A, well, adrenaline is fabricated downstream from dopamine. So in order to support adrenaline, we also have to support dopamine. Um, so that's like where the, the protein comes into play. And then type two A's typically do well with some kind of, you know, variable like carb cycling, calorie mm -hmm. cycling, alternating <laughs> weeks to just keep things interesting. So they're consistently getting the adrenaline response that they crave. Um, and, and there's different, like even with a type two B, um, you know, glutamate is already pretty high. High carbs typically drives glutamate even higher, which makes their emotional stability a little bit off. So we have to be careful about, you know, if we're going too high carb for a 2B, they like, typically they respond really well in almost like the traditional bodybuilder style where it's like most carbs are around their training or yeah. maybe last meal before bed. Um, other than that, you know, we're kind of keeping them more like protein fat. So there's different strategies based off of brain chemistry. Um, and then outside of that, we also have to look at the lifestyle variables and just like what makes sense for each individual. But just from the, the neurotype perspective, um, the influence that it has on like mood stability and just feeling better. Um, it, it's such a huge tool in the tools toolbox. 
Well, and it, it, it's it's funny because uh, you know I mentioned you know I think my I'm pretty sure my wife would be a type three. You know, she balances me out. I'm a type one B, so I'm I, you know I'm the I'm the I'm the emotional one that's the extrovert, and she's the she's the analytical more more anxiety, and you know she balances me out. So we're not you know I'm not going crazy all the time. But like when it comes to our food, like if if I'm making dinner and I'm like yeah I want I want a ribeye and broccoli and and you know I'll make potatoes too, and she's like yeah you can keep the steak. I just, just give me an extra potato <laughs> you know like that totally that totally makes sense because she she wants those extra carbs because that's what that's what makes her brain happy and i want the protein and the fat because that's what makes my brain happy like it, it makes we both want the wine because wine is yeah, delicious definitely. but <laughs> yeah. yeah it's funny sometimes we do we gravitate towards you know the the training style and the nutrition style that fits our nature um, and then a, a lot of the times we get kind of diluted by all the noise out, out there and we're like, oh, well, I have to do this. I have to do that. I have to follow, you know, keto or fasting or whatever else, because this is what somebody said. Um, and in reality, there's, there's a large part of your intuition that kind of knew all along what was the right fit. I just, I just now, like, I, I just had an epiphany and now I feel terrible uh, because when my wife and I were getting ready for our wedding, um, she asked me to help her with it, with her, her nutrition and training. And she was, so she followed basically the same plan that I was doing. I was like, well, you probably, we probably need to cut out your potatoes because at that, you know, this is bad, you know, this is 15 years ago. I was like, well, you know, potatoes are bad, you know, too many carbs is bad. So I took away her potato. She literally cried <laughs> when, I told, when I told her she couldn't have potatoes anymore, uh, at least for a few months while we, while we did our high intensity interval training and, and, you know, circuit style weightlifting, you know, which was great for me. Yeah. Um, she, she probably hated life. So I, I, I owe my wife one of, uh, at least, I don't know, 14,000 apologies. Um, so. I've made so many mistakes along the way uh, you know, it's just, we, we have to learn from experience. So before, until I, I realized all the things, like I have a similar example where I had a client who was a 2B and, you know, 2B is like, they're the worst thing that a 2B that can happen to a 2B is they let down somebody that they respect, like, like a mentor or a coach or a te like they will just go into their like internal shell. And by the way, 2B clients are the ones that are most likely to just like ghost you because they don't want to let you down. Like if they messed up on their plan, it literally kills them to be like, uh Oh, my coach is going to be disappointed in me. So they'll just not say anything. And then you won't hear from them. So I had a 2B client that I was training and um, she's like going to do this lift and hit a PR and I'm over here, like hyping her up. And I'm like, let's go. You got this. Like, and I'm <laughs> amping, and it's like the worst thing that you could do. For if it was a one A or one B all for it. They would, they would, yeah. get it. they would do it. It would amp them up and they would be fine. A 2B, all the all she's thinking about is, oh my God, this is so much pressure. Now I have to do this. And of course, you failed the lift. Now she thinks she let me down. Now she let you down. Now she it's even worse. It's a death spiral. She was literally crying in the gym. And I'm like, oh my God, what did I just do? And then once I learned, I was like, I can't believe. I was that bad of a trainer, but again, we learn from experience. Yeah. Yeah. You live, you live and learn. You hopefully you get it, you get it more right than you, than you get it wrong. Um, but so, so it, it obviously it dovetails into the training style as well. So, so what is, what is the, the quick summary of what are the different training styles for, for people that, that have the different types? Yeah, for sure. So it kind of follows along the same school of thought which which is, you know, type one A's dopamine dominant. So we're looking at high intensity, maximum load, um, something that's going to drive dopamine up. However, we don't want too much dopamine being dumped into adrenaline because that will deplete dopamine. So if you think about the type of activities that will increase adrenaline, it's quicker pace and it's more like 
supersets, uh, metabolic conditioning, fast workouts, fast tempo. So type 1A certainly does not want to do that um, because they're going to dump more dopamine into adrenaline, which would deplete dopamine. They'll feel like crap. What they like is heavyweight. They want to win the workout. It's the competitive drive. So it's like grind it out. German volume training, 10 sets of 10 sets of 10. (laughs) Yeah. So they're more of like your strongman competitors, power lifters, um, you know, anything where they can feel that intensity, um, but not deplete dopamine type one B's, even though they're also dopamine dominant because they have high levels of acetylcholine, they can get away with more in terms of volume, in terms of, um, you know, just, keeping supersets in the mix because acetylcholine takes on a lot of properties of adrenaline. So you're not relying as much on adrenaline to get the job done. And with their acetylcholine, they like to have multitasking involved. They like that mental stimulation. So a type one B is typically somebody who likes explosive movements, complex movements, uh, supersets. They like a quicker pace uh, and they can handle a lot of volume because they don't have to risk or they don't are not as um, at risk of depleting dopamine with their higher levels of acetylcholine. So um, they're they're the type that's like, you know, skill transfer. They can do something like lunges and it transfers to their squats, even though they hadn't practiced squats. So um, just very like athletic, explosive type movements, uh, kind of like Olympic weightlifters. Um, and then the type two A's we're all about variety. So, you know, typically type two A's do well with CrossFit. There's kind of the built-in variety type one yep. can do well with CrossFit as well. Um, but anything like we can do, you know, some kinds of powerlifting, it just can't be too repetitive. We can do some yep. type of bodybuilding. It just can't be too repetitive. So a typical mix of both like neurological work, but also, also muscular work. Um, the type two B is your traditional bodybuilder mind muscle connection. It's all about the pump. It's all about this fantastic all the time. Exactly. So, and they also like the, the positive reinforced training. So they'll often gravitate even towards like spin class or orange theory where there's like a pool of sweat. That's, that's a sign that they had a good workout. Like I can feel the sweat. That means I did something positive. Um, and then the, the type threes are technical masters. They love to master form and technique before anything else. So they can do anything. It just takes them the time to feel comfortable with it um, enough to master that skill. And then oftentimes they do gravitate more towards endurance sports because it's so repetitive. They can just go for a long run or a long cycle and just be in their mind. And, and at almost is like a calming activity for them um, because it's so repetitive and predictable. Yeah. You just, you gave me, you just, so I've, I've had a, I've had a hypothesis in my head for a while that there's a, that there is a psychological profile for people that gravitate to kettlebell sport. Um, you know, and we were talking before we started recording about how the, the, you know, some of the athletes that I've had take your assessment, you know, have thus far all come up as one B, but now I'm going to give it, I'm going to give it to everybody. Cause now I want to see, I want to see what, A, what do they need from a training style and B, what do they need from a nutrition style? from a nutrition standpoint, but I can see, I can see a lot of people in this sport being very much type three because it is a very technical, cyclical, repetitive sport. And there's a lot to master. Um, but there are also three different lifts within it. So snatch is like, 
you're doing 200 plus reps in a 10 minute set and it's like the form needs to be perfect but like long cycle is clean and jerk it's power output so i could see a lot of people that are long cyclists being one one b dominant you know so i'm just now now my brain's going all sorts of all sorts of different directions so i i love it man this is uh this is an intersection of all the things i nerd out on psychology training nutrition you know um so i i love it this is this is fantastic i I gotta get into the certification yeah definitely and that's that's the fun part about it not only like will you start putting those pieces together and profiling everybody that you encounter. But, <laughs> um, you know, some of the things is with, uh, with relationships, that's one area that I, when I created the certification, I did not expect there to be so many people who were like, this improved my marriage, this improved my relationship with my kids. This, and that was like so rewarding because I totally didn't expect it, but it makes sense when there's a greater level of self-awareness, but also a greater level of awareness around who you're interacting with and why like some people are like, Oh my God, I just had this light bulb moment about this argument that we got in. And now I can totally see why they thought this. And it was like these, these moments. It's like the love, the love languages thing. It's 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 very similar. That's, that's fantastic, man. That is fantastic. I could totally see that. So you've given, you've given a great gift to the world, man. Uh, That is, that is awesome. Like I'm, I'm very, I'm very excited for, I'm very excited to have, have discovered this. And uh, I'm, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast, man. This is, this is fantastic. I'm, I'm nerding out. My face hurts from smiling. So I'm, I'm really, I'm really excited. Um, So how do people, how do people follow you? How do they hire you? How do they, how do they work with, uh, you know, pop coaches, Um, you know, give people, give people the, you know, how do they learn more about, about neurotyping and how do they get after you? Yeah, for sure. I appreciate you having me on. This was uh, this was a lot of fun. So uh, the best place to connect with me personally is Instagram. It's at coach underscore Mike underscore Milner. Um, and then you can also connect with me on Facebook, which is just Mike Milner. Um, my website has the neurotype assessment. If anybody wants to take that, it's I'll just put the link in the show notes for sure. Yeah, it's just neurotypetraining.com. Um, and so yeah, you can find a lot of information on there. Uh, we have a Facebook group that's it's called the personality diet and neurotype training. Um, and then I also have a podcast called mind over macros. Um, that's like my passion project where I can just have some long form conversations like this, which is what I enjoy the most. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Mike, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate you taking the time and thank you for, for dropping all the knowledge. Uh, you know, guys go, go give them a follow on, on Instagram, join the group on Facebook. I'm in his Facebook group. I'm doing, I'm actually during doing the neurotype challenge. He's got a six week challenge going on right now. That one's full, but I'm assuming there'll be another one coming up probably in the not too distant future. You'll probably do another six week challenge, which is a nice intro to this concept and gives you a kind of a, a good, a good blueprint. And, um, I think it was, it was a hundred bucks to get in, but you can get your money back at the end of it if you if you follow if you follow the the steps. So it's a it's a really cool thing. Yeah, definitely. We'll we'll probably do them quarterly. Is is kind of the plan right now. So yeah, definitely get in the group and then you'll stay up to date on on the next challenge. Awesome. Well, Mike, uh, thank you so much for coming on. I appreciate you taking the time, and uh, we'll be in touch soon, man. Yeah. Thanks so much. All right. Have a good day. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Platform Podcast. I'm Jordan Cundy-Wright. We'll be back with a new episode for you next week. Please don't forget to register for the Twin Cities Kettlebell Open on our website, TwinCitiesKettlebellClub.com. And if you have a question or a suggestion, please email me at TwinCitiesKettlebellClub at gmail.com. 
And don't forget to follow us on social media at Twin Cities Kettlebell Club. And if you want to step onto the platform and compete in kettlebell sport, please reach out to me. Until next time.